Knowledge is the fuel that powers intelligent buying and selling. So get a quick recharge with me, Ron Edwards, Master Sommelier and Director of Wine Education for Winebow, Fine Wine, and Spirits. Welcome back to WineSmart. Today we're going to talk about a beautiful appellation in northern Spain called Ribera del Duero. Ribera del Duero is a denominación de origen adio that runs along the Duero River in north central Spain for about 110 kilometers. That's about 68 miles. It lies completely within the autonomous region of Castillon, and it's part of four provinces running from west to east. They are Valladolid, Burgos, Soria, and Segovia. If you want to look those provinces up on a map, it'll help you figure out how Ribera del Duero relates to the rest of Spain when you're not looking at a wine map. The center of the appellation is due north of Madrid, uh, 165 kilometers, or that's about 103 miles. It's 270 kilometers, about 168 miles, due west of Saragossa, and 242 kilometers, about 150 miles, south-southwest of Bilbao. The Duero River itself, which becomes the Duru River in Portugal, where all the ports made, is basically cutting from east to west across an elevated plateau. And uh, the altitude range of the region is 700 to 1,000 meters. That's 2,296 feet to 3,280 feet. So this is high altitude viticulture. It's comparable to um, a lot of Mendoza, not Uco Valley, but main Mendoza, Argentina. And um, it's in the more elevated versions of what you find in Europe. And as I've pointed out many times in these episodes, high altitude viticulture has a beautiful effect of diurnal shift. And when you're in a warm climate like Mendoza, or in this case, like Ribera del Duero, where there's lots and lots of sunshine and in the summer months, it gets hot. That diurnal shift has that range of temperature so that it cools off significantly at night and allows the vines to refresh. And speaking of temperature, in general, this is a climate of extremes. And what you do see is that temperature increases as you travel from east to west, which makes sense because you're basically going downhill, losing elevation from east to west. The summer highs, however, just kind of for the region at large, regularly reach 39 Celsius. That's 102 Fahrenheit or exceed it. Um, the absolute peak I've seen as much as 107 degrees Fahrenheit or 42 Celsius. And then the winters being very continental in their approach are bitter cold. Winter lows regularly hit minus 20 degrees Celsius. That's minus four Fahrenheit. This is cold enough for vine killing. It really matters how they take care of vineyards in the wintertime. It's also a fairly arid climate. Rainfall is pretty scant with an average of less than 40 centimeters per year. That's 16 inches. In general, you need about 20 inches of rain to dry farm, but if you're careful with the way you plant and how you manage vineyards, you can go below that. In this, in this case, one of the things they do is they have very low vine density, much more spread out than someplace like Bordeaux. And they also have bush training on most of their vines, and bush training naturally reserves water. You see it a lot in Rhone, and you see it here as well, and you see it in, in central Spain a lot. And it has this beautiful side effect of not only shading the berries because of the vegetative growth, but also uses less water throughout the growing season. 
as you would expect, sunlight is in abundance. They have really long days in the summertime, 13 to 15 hours in the growing season because you're at 41 degrees north latitude. Those long days of sunlight allow for the vine to go into a period of shutdown when it's really hot. And then as the temperature cools off, you still have some hours of daylight left and the vine can come back into activity. And that stressful heat of summer is helped out by this large diurnal shift. And because of that, instead of the grapes ripening really fast because it's hot, it actually slows down. And that 25 to 30 degree Fahrenheit change every day extends the growing season, offering you know a maximum opportunity for flavor development without losing the fresh bright side of Tempranillo, which is their main grape. As you go through the entirety of Ribera del Duero, you will find 30 different soil series to consider in detail. But for our purposes, let's just talk about the three things that create those soil series. It's a combination of these three things. The first one is reddish brown clay that's mixed with sand and silt. It has great water holding capacity, which is tremendous in the semi-arid climate. And the result of this soil is it produces structured wines. Expect more tannin and more body. Then there is a calcareous limestone pebbly soil, which is tremendously well-drained and produces more elegant styles of wine. The final is stony soils. They look like a uh, small cobble, um, not like shutting up to pop, more like lots of rocks in the vineyards and not a lot of soil. They don't hold water, but they do hold heat, which means that that heat in the daytime, especially as you get into Verazon and fall when temperatures start to drop, stays in the vineyard and allows continued ripening. That creates wines with very ripe character, a lot of fruit, and higher alcohol potential, as you would imagine. General statement, when you're in the east, you see a little bit more sand, and in the west, you see a little bit more of that reddish-brown clay. Wines have been made in this region since antiquity, and that is absolutely proven by the numerous Roman-era artifacts and Ligarish, the stone-crushing and fermenting basins that are that you can still visit throughout the region. There's also this amazing Bacchus mosaic found in Baños de Valdeorados, uh, measuring 66 meters squared. That's 710 square feet mosaic. It's absolutely beautiful. You should look up a picture. There's also wine residues found within the uh, Vasean site of Pintilla in the municipality of Padilla del Duero in the district of Peñafiel. That wine residue has been dated back to 2,500 years ago. So that is even pre-Roman activity in the area. Fast forwarding past the Romans, the 13th century um, moved the local area beyond consumption of its own product and into a distribution beyond its borders. And then in the 15th century, they added more exports as well as some controls and laws so that they wouldn't be selling against imitations. But as always, as time goes by, you always need at least one, but you always need one visionary that it says, I'm going to extract the full potential of a region. And that visionary for the Ribero del Duero was Don Eloy Lecanda y Chavez. He founded an estate that would eventually be known as Vega Cecilia, which has become one of the finest of all Spanish wineries and was probably the most well-known for nearly decades. Once you got outside of Rioja, everybody knew Vega Cecilia. His efforts really set the foundation of what Ribero del Duero could be, using Cabernet Sauvignon along with Tempranillo and making a, a different style of wine than what you would expect out of Rioja. Then their cellar master, Domingo Garramiola Chumin, uh, dreamed up the Unico project, which would feature the great wines of Vega Cecilia with extended age in the cellar, minimum 10 years. 
prior to bottling. And that was absolute success. The wines are still legendary. Um, personally, the 1970 Vega Cecilia Unico at 30 years of age is one of the most perfect wines I've ever tasted. And then, you know, many others have followed because this is a region that has grown tremendously since the 80s. Um, but names like Tinto Pesquera, Bodegas Portilla, and Pingas are part of those creating the critical mass of greatness in the region that allows it to be a world-class region. And, and in 1982, they finally got all the paperwork together and decided what they should be and achieved their DO with the Spanish government. From then to now, they went from 24 wineries to over 300 today. Rivera del Duero is basically synonymous with Tempranillo. 95% of the vineyards are planted to that grape, locally called Tinto Fino and Tinta del País. But they also use and authorize Cabernet Sauvignon, Garnacha, Malbec, and Merlot. These become blending partners to make a wine that just based on the blending partners is going to be different than Rioja down the road, which is using Nomazuelo and um, Graciano and Garnacha. White wines were authorized finally in 2019, which brought Albillo Mayor into the fold of acknowledged white grape varieties. Um, it's fully indigenous and is believed to have a parent-offspring relationship with Tempranillo. The reds that are labeled Ribera del Duero must be at least 75% Tempranillo, and the whites must be at least 75% Albillo Mayor. The rosados are a minimum of 50% of any of the authorized red varieties, and then you can go from there. So when you think of Spanish wine, you hopefully think of the consistent use of aging requirements as a condition of quality. The words that come to mind would be things like roble, for a fresh wine to drink young, crianza, reserva, and gran reserva. Those all apply in Ribera del Duero wines. Whether you see them on the label or not depends on the producer, but let's go through the requirements for each. So if you have a Ribera del Duero roble, that wine is a minimum of three months oak aging in 600 liter barrels or smaller. If you're talking crianza, that's 24 months in total for reds with minimum of 12 months in barrique, 330 liters or smaller. And then for whites and rosados, bianco and rosado, those are 18 months in total with minimum of six months in barrique. Reserva wines require 36 months of age with a minimum of 12 months in barrique for reds. Whites require 24 months of age total with six months in barrique. And when you get to Gran Reserva wines, those reds are aged for at least 60 months before release with 24 months being in barrique. And the whites require 48 months of age total, six months in barrique. So we know immediately that one of the signatures of Ribera del Duero is going to be the fingerprint of oak. One thing to note is that you will not see each one of the producers using these aging designations associated with their label. Sometimes they just have a bottling title that they came up with and they make wine the way they want for that bottling title, which still qualifies as Ribera Duero and just doesn't put the aging requirement on it um, because they really want to stand on the brand. I don't have a problem with that. And there are certainly wines that come to mind for that regard, like Vega Cecilia Unico and Valbuena. Tinto Pesquera originally didn't have those aging requirements on it. Pingus doesn't have them on it. And it doesn't make the wines lesser or greater when they use it or don't use it. It's just more or less marketing, as well as um, not wanting to change a wine that already has an identity in the marketplace. Ribera wines may be made from Tempranillo, but they are not the same style as Rioja. 
The traditional adding of Bordeaux grape varieties changes those flavor profiles to a darker set of berries and offers more substantial tannins. And the local variant of Tempranillo is more tannic than most of the versions you will find in Rioja. Roberto Duero is warmer and you're blending in Bordeaux grape varietals. So you just get more substantive wines on average. You can always find an exception to the rule, but that's what you should be looking for when you compare Roberto Duero and Rioja. And in the modern world, if you're going to put Tempranillo on your wine list or in your store, you need both because a complete picture of this grape variety isn't there without Rioja and Roberto Duero for sure. And there are a couple of others that you would need to consider as well, but we'll stop there because this episode's about Roberto del Duero. So make sure you check out the show notes because I put a link to the Consejo Regulador and Bodegas Portilla. Both of those links can help you start your exploration of Roberto Duero. Until next time.